Sorry, assholes, your quiet day at the office is about to get severely fucked up. Guys, welcome back to another edition of the After Action Review. You know me, I'm Nick Guy, painfully mediocre and okay, and as per usual, we have more than okay guests. Once again, we're welcoming back, we're welcoming back Adam Holroyd, founder of the hottest tad school manufacturing company in the world right now, Spiritus Systems, but... We already got into that. You guys, if you haven't seen the episode, go back. It's about four or five episodes ago. Listen to what he had to say, his story of starting this incredible company and his experiences that led to, you know, probably the best trip on the market. But last time, Adam, we, we touched on on Cop Keating and, and what happened there, and, and he was on the QRF. So... We're just going to – I really wanted to bring him back on and hear it from the horse's mouth and, and, and get perspective on, you know, what happened. So, Adam, first off, dude, thanks so much for coming back on. Yeah, of course. No problem. It's always a pleasure, always a privilege. So, just kind of take us back to the beginning, the, 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 the situation that, that led to, to Cop Keating being overrun, how you guys were on QRF, and, and what happened after. Yeah, sure. So, so uh, first off, I'm going to just start off with saying that, you know, my perspective is small um, in the overall scheme of maneuver. Um, you know, being a sniper team leader, uh, you know, I had a very small element and my, you know, what I could see on this was, was kind of limited to just what I was doing. Um, so there's, I'm not going to get into like the really the high level uh, scheme of maneuver and timelines and stuff like that, because quite frankly, uh, until I was in, you know, inside the, um, the cop, I didn't really understand the significance of what was going on. It was just kind of another day uh, in Afghanistan, right? Um, our unit was, this was pretty much standard, you know, operating procedure for us, you know, and for myself for the last two years uh, before this had happened, right? Um, so our, our previous deployment was very kinetic. Uh, we lost a ton of guys, you know, it was, it was the, our, our battalion stood up the Pesh River Valley, the Korngal Valley, uh, Outposts, um, Bella, Aranis, all those kind of places that people know about um, in the Kunar province. Uh, this, you know, this attack being further up north in Nuristan, um, you know, that, that day that it happened, uh, I think it was like October 3rd of 2009 was when the cop got overran. Right, so Cop Keating and the guys that were there on the complex attack that happened, you know, that was going on. And I was actually on a different operation um, as a sniper team leader that same, that the same time frame. Um, so, you know, how it, how it went down for us is I was, we'd actually just come off that operation. We had just like refitted all of our stuff, right? Like our priorities of work, we just made, you know, we did them the right way. Uh, so we, you know, we got off, I think we actually got off a helicopter, went back, cleaned our weapons, repacked our stuff, and I went to sleep, actually. And, uh, you know, the, it was real dark in our, in our hooch, and the door opened, and I kind of heard people talking, and uh, I heard, hey, we need, we need one of the teams, one of the sniper teams, there's four teams in our platoon that needs to, you know, we need them for a QRF. There's been an outpost that has gotten overrun. Uh, and so... I kind of woke up and, and started talking and talking to people. And I think they were initially going to send team four. Uh, I was on team three. And, uh, and then it just so happened that we were just ready to go, right? Team four, I think maybe one of their guys was like at the gym or something and they would have to like run and get them. So they were like, hey guys, we just need you to grab your rucks, 
you know, and just get on, get out to the, uh, to the LZ. So that's what we did. Uh, me and my, and my shooter, I'm not going to say his name. I, I'm not sure if he really wants to be on here, but anyways, he's a, he's a really good dude. He's still kind of active. So I don't want to, I don't want to like blow him out here, but we, uh, we basically went to the LZ. Uh, we met up with a headquarters element from our um, battalion. So it was, you know, some, it was like a first sergeant, a fires guy, you know, the um, company RTO, stuff like that. Uh, and then there was a platoon as well um, from our battalion. And uh, we loaded up on, you know, on helicopters, a couple Chinooks, some Blackhawks. Um, and we started this like kind of trek up north, right? So that's, that's kind of how it started out. Um, and I don't even honestly remember what time of day that was. But I just remember getting on a, I got on a Blackhawk and you know, it was doors open. They were, they were basically like, Hey, uh, we're going to land at a hot LZ. Uh, so you guys like, we're, you know, we're probably going to land the Chinook. We're going to, we're going to um, loiter with the Blackhawk, you know, I mean, it's like kind of, kind of ridiculous to think that they were going to throw us into this, you know, aerial shooting <laughs> charade. I was like, that's not a good plan, but whatever. So uh, it's a big misconception about snipers, but so anyway, do you guys do aerial shooting in the Bravo Four course? Uh, not in the Bravo Four, um, not down at Sniper School, but you can do it. You can get exposure to it a couple ways. I mean, international sniper competition, and then honestly, just if your unit um, is kind of turned on, uh, then you can absolutely get exposed to that. So um, at that point in my career, I was not exposed to it. So I was like, hey, this isn't a good plan. Like we're not, I mean, there's, I understood the concept. We had done like tons of like class, classroom stuff on it. Some of the senior, more senior guys were exposed to it. Uh, but I was like, hey, we're, we're, this is not a good plan. I mean, if it's the only plan, we'll do what we have to do. But it's, it's not, it's not a capability we possess right now. Um, so we've, you know, we started flying up north, which it required stops, right? We had to stop at Fob Bostic, I believe. I think it was only one stop, but I don't really remember. But we, we stopped, we you know, we refueled the helicopters and then we took back off and we actually landed um, up at OP Fritchie, which was the supporting element, the high ground element um, of Cop Keating, right? So that's where we actually ended up landing. Uh, and, and my understanding was that during the attack, there was like a mortar element up there, but during the attack, Fritchie was decisively engaged as well. So the enemy knew, you know, basically we have to, we have to like pin this OP down and make it fight for its own survival so that it can't support, um, you know, the, the proper fob down there. So that was, that's where we ended up landing. Was at that time, I mean, had, had the Taliban exhibited any, this level of complexity up to this point, like the idea of being like, Hey, they have a fire support element on the high ground. If we're going to take this, if we're going to take Keating, we need to decisively engage that. That, that seems like it's, you know, traditional military tactics, not really something that the Taliban was, was known for fighting a guerrilla war. Yeah. So, I mean, good, I mean, good question. You know, 2007 timeframe, uh, you know, I was, I was on the Pesh, I was in the Korndal. Uh, that was, that was basically the, the type of fighting that was going on. The enemy was decisively engaging elements, trying to, trying to mass, right. That was like a common tactic, especially in the Korndal really trying to mass. And, and honestly, it caused us to shift our tactics uh, in a big way. So, in, you know, a good example would be like a machine gun team. Instead of, a, instead of the, the gunner only carrying a 50-round starter belt, he was carrying 1,000 rounds on his body, right? So he had the gun and 1,000 rounds, and the AG had 1,000 rounds. And everybody in the platoon had a 100-round link in their ruck because it was self-support. And then you also, we did a lot of 60-millimeter mortar support. Um, and then just our, you know, our, our organic mortars to the, to the company, they were probably the, the heroes of the battle there because, you know, they fired, I mean, there was not a day that went by that there was not somebody in the battalion in contact that entire deployment. I mean, if there was, I don't remember it. It was just constant, but that was, that was the tactic, right? They started learning, uh, and they used some of this stuff, um, to attack cop Keating they were learning how we fight and how we respond. You know, the army is very good at like, hey, this is the battle drill. You know, you, you receive contact, this is where you go. 
you know, this is where the private goes. He goes to this machine gun. He picks the machine gun up. He starts shooting. His buddy comes up. He starts feeding the gun. It's like they were just learning that. So they were attacking uh, Cop Keating before this just to get the data. You know, they come shoot some RPGs at it, shoot at it, see where everybody ran to, including OP Fritchie. So they knew that, like, hey, the OP is going to start raining mortars down on us very quickly. These guys are, are combat veterans. They're, they're not fucking around. So we need to pin that OP down. But that's where we, that's where we ended up. We, you know, I, we, we landed there. We offloaded. Honestly, I don't even remember how many, I don't even remember how many birds it was that took, like, how long it took us to do that. Uh, there was a little bit of a dwell time at, at the OP. Uh, and then we started our movement down the mountain, right? So we were, I remember, pretty high elevation and compar comparatively where OP Fritchie was. And uh, so we just had to start wait, making our way down, not really knowing what we were going to find. And uh, we were actually the last people in the element. Um, so it was uh, myself and my, my sniper buddy. We were the last two kind of bringing up the rear, right? Uh, which is kind of where I wanted to be, you know. So we were, we were kind of bringing up the rear and we were dropping mortars. We were basically fan firing mortars in front of our, you know, however far out, fan fire 120s from OP Fritchie, move down to that area, fan fire 120s. We did come across guys that, I remember one of the, a 240 gunner that was walking, the whole element walked past this ditch and didn't see these two guys in the ditch. Uh, like Taliban fighters or whatever. We'll just say Taliban. They might not have been Taliban. They're probably foreign assholes or whatever. But uh, we were walking by in this in this 240 gunner from the supporting platoon. He just happened to look down and see these guys. So he pulled out his Beretta and just smoked both of these dudes, right? Before, you know, <laughs> like they were hiding in this. Yeah. So this guy like straight up was like, oh man. And he like pop, pop, pop. And I just heard, I was like, oh shit, here it goes. But yeah, it was just him. Those dudes were hiding in a ditch. Uh, trying to kind of evade, and uh, I'm sure they were like pretty scared because they just had 120s rain down on them like crazy. So they were they were probably pretty pretty uh, scared there. But so we, that was the only contact though we made on the way down, right? Um, but it was really surreal experience because it was we could see the OP or sorry we could see the uh, fire base from time to time through the trees and stuff, and it was you know there was smoke billowing from it. And as we got closer, the smoke was getting worse, you know, because other buildings were catching on fire and things were starting, you know, it was just deteriorating. Uh, the attack was over, but it was, you know, it was just kind of was the, the stuff that had happened before was, was just burning everything down. Um, and it was nightfall by the time we got to the, to the base of the mountain. And so just under nods, just kind of watching the, the, you know, the area, we're just kind of stopped, we're like kind of giving everything a, pro a pause to let, you know, see what's going to happen, uh, trying to make contact with um, the guys inside the FOB, we're doing a, like a link up, right, and, you know, if you know anything about link ups for the audience, it's like the most dangerous time, especially after somebody just went through something like that, right, um, I don't think we, I don't believe we did make contact with them either, I think we, we tried and tried and tried and we couldn't make contact. That could be wrong, but I don't remember hearing any radio traffic. Um, and then we, uh, we walked down to the perimeter and we had to figure out a way in. So, they, you know, they had Constantino wire. It was, you know, uh, we, I, I can't remember. I think, they, I think we cut through the wire and then just kind of let ourselves in. Um, and this is where stuff really started to, like, go downhill in terms of uh, what kind of day we were going to have, right? Um, so we didn't really know the full story yet, you know, nobody knew the full story yet. So we, we were walking in and I remember the first thing that I saw was, you know, there's a U.S. soldier on the ground, uh, with like his brains fucking blown out, you know, just in the moon dust, super weird feeling because, you know, the army, it's like, don't leave. I mean, we don't leave like ammo cans unsecured. So like seeing a person there, kind of like a weird feeling. And then. So we continued on. I mean, we, you know, we checked them out. We continued on. Um, and there was an entire M2, you know, 50 cal barrel, a whole assembly just in the moon dust. You know, it, like the enemy was trying to recover it or something. And it just like, they're like, this thing's freaking heavy, man. Like, just leave it. So they just dropped it in the moon dust. Um, and there was just carnage, man. I mean, that's when we really started to get a feel of, like, it was no joke. I mean, these guys, they experienced an attack an overwhelming attack, right? It wasn't, it was uncommon for sure. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we linked up eventually. And like I said, I was at the back of the element. So I don't know who performed the link up. I don't really know how that even like went down. Uh, but we successfully linked up. And then uh, I remember we went to the aid station, right, where all the casualties were. Uh, and there was a, and I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him, but there was a medic in there. And he, you know, he, he was the only guy, it really struck me because he was the only guy in that aid station just kind of, he's, and he just said, you know, collectively to all of us, he just said, I just didn't want to leave them here alone, you know, like, I just didn't want to leave the bodies here. I didn't know what to do, you know, and so we were just like, fuck, you know, like, we, we got it, you know, like, we'll, we're here now, like, we'll help you out. Uh, so it was, it was four of us. I mean, we set in a perimeter, you know, we did infantry stuff, like the platoon that was there, they, they're squared away. Uh, they, they really, they pushed out a perimeter. Uh, and, they, and they locked it down. And then being part of kind of the headquarters, I mean, there was no contact going on. There was an AC-130 on station the entire time. Like, they weren't coming back to play anymore, right? And so we just started doing what, like, kind of finding work, you know? Like, what can we do to, like, make this better? Uh, and when we first got there, we didn't know we were dismantling the cop, right? We just knew that we were there as a QRF to, like, bolster the force, to help out, whatever we could do. Um, and so myself, my sniper buddy, the um, company RTO actually, and uh, a sergeant who's actually a good friend of mine, but from my first deployment, um, he was a, actually, well, he might've been a staff sergeant at that time, but doesn't matter. He, you know, us four, we were the ones who carried all of the casualties to the LZ. So that was kind of like the first order of business, right? It was like, we had to get these guys it's kind of a maze of a cop, right? So we had to get them and we had to move them through the barracks. Uh, well, it wasn't even a barrack. It was like, I'm not sure what it was. It was some room, but that's basically where a lot of these guys were now, right? They were centrally located. They had kind of alamoed in a couple of buildings. And so we started moving, uh, you know, the casualties through there. And I just remember it being very, you know, very emotional for them. Obviously we didn't, my first choice would not have been to move the casualties through but there was no other way out. It was just how it was constructed. And it was like, we just got to do it. So we tried to respectfully move these guys through as quick as we could. And then we got them out to the LZ and, you know, Blackhawks came in and as, you know, took guys as they could. And, and we got those guys out of there. Uh, so that was, you know, that was kind of like the first order of business. Um, and I remember that, you know, that night uh, we, there were some guys, like the, the AC-130 was seeing some stuff on the scope. So it was like, hey, we got guys over here. Is that you? We're like, no. And so they, you know, they were shooting pretty much all night, just kind of shooting at guys. And uh, we just kind of like, me and my sniper buddy were just laying there on the ground. And it was like this surreal, the, like it was like a, like a, the moon was out and you could see the AC-130 kind of pass in front of it every couple minutes, right, as it orbited. And uh, a little bit of cloud cover but it was just weird, right? It was just eerie. It was really quiet. We were expecting such a, you know, like a, a thing. And it really just turned into like, hey, there's nothing else to do tonight, right? We were just like bed down. So we just chilled, uh, you know, security, pulled guard, normal things. Um, and then the next day is when the real work kind of started. And that, you know, the work was my sniper buddy and I were essentially tasked with cleaning up uh, sensitive items. So we were going out and that's where we got really a firsthand exposure to just the absolute carnage that had happened. I mean, it was, there was a 1151 up armored Humvee that had a perfect like softball sized hole through the armored glass and then like through the seat, you know, the, and then like through, the, it was just like through the bottom of the Humvee. I don't know if it was like a Spig 9 or something just like recoilless rifle, straight, like direct lay right into it. Uh, you know, there was a plate in there that you could tell like a guy just like took one, you know, it was just, it was just like taking apart all that stuff, right. That had failed, honestly, it was just, it was so overwhelming. Uh, the battle that like equipment failures that I've never seen a 240. I went to charge it and I could not move the charging handle at all. So I had to like kick it, you know, I had to like kick the charging handle and it was just like seized you know, 50 cows that we couldn't charge. All of the mortar tubes had bullet holes through them, multiple bullet holes through them. Um, so what we started learning as we were peeling back the layers of this is that like they decisively engaged 
the mortars. You know, that was one of the things that they knew they had to take away the indirect fire. Um, the tubes were like Swiss cheese. So we knew that they took those out early and then they targeted all the gun trucks, right? A lot of their positions were gun trucks and they just targeted them and they knew exactly where these guys were going to come out of their barracks. So they targeted the entrances as well. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it was, it was a couple of days of that. I mean, we were, there were, there were uh, enemy, you know, casualties on the compound uh, that were, I mean, they were like, I mean, there was a couple, I mean, Rome, like, I did talk to Romache for like very briefly. Uh, he came, he was one of the few guys that would kind of emerge from this Alamo. And he was like, I remember him kind of just standing there. Uh, and he was like, yeah, that guy over there, I saw him smiling or whatever, right? Like he thought that the battle was over. He didn't realize that there were some of us still alive. So I just like shot him in the back of the fucking head, you know? And like that dude who had like, he was just like a UXO. He had like all these RPGs and like, you know, we had to, we had to move Humvees like, cause you know, we, now we, by now we, for so, some way we had known like, Hey, we're blowing this place up. We're leaving, right? We're like, we have a certain amount of time and then we're going to blow as much up as we can. And then we are going to fly out of here and a B-1 bomber is going to come in and just destroy the rest of it. Um, and so we were part, you know, we were kind of tasked with like moving all these vehicles and uh, getting them online. And then there was like some combat engineers, I believe. It might've been an EOD guy. He was like crater tra cratering charges and all these vehicles, stuff like that. Just whatever they had on hand for demo, trying to kind of, you know, pee for plenty, everything. Mm -hmm. Um and, uh, and so uh, my, sh my shooter and I, we kind of were like, let's try to recover a bunch of this, these, this guy's stuff too, right? These guys just went through this. They have a bunch of like personal items. So we went into their barracks and like just packed duffel bags and like threw those in a pile to just try to like anything we could grab that looked like it might be important personal stuff, right? Um, so we did that. We couldn't get it all. The building we were in was on fire. It sounds so crazy right now to think that like we were like man this guy's stuff these guys stuff is important let's go in this burning building and grab it but at the moment it seemed important to us you know so that's we, not that's not crazy dude yeah like, i that's, mean it's, it that's seems, even, like i know i i know like in hindsight you think to yourself that's, that's a little crazy that's fucking nuts like i went to a a burning building to recover personal items family stuff, photos yeah stuff i mean whatever like, we could yeah but I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to cut you off, but real no, quick, no, I, just want, I, I really just want to, I want to circle back. One of the first things that you mentioned once you guys made entry to Keating was an American service member who was dead, just yeah. lying in the dead open. Man. I, for, for those listening that aren't familiar, that, that haven't served or, or they're civilians, that shit is unheard of in the modern United States Army or, or military yeah. in a whole. Like yep. the whole idea of recovering the dead, like this is a this is asymmetric warfare. Like we are we are the biggest baddest dudes on the battlefield. So when we yeah. do take casualties, war tourism, man, we are immediately recovering them because we control the battle space. You can't control yeah. casualties. You're going to take casualties, but we control the battle space. So we can at least we can move our dead and wounded. So just to see like a dead American soldier just in the open. And that sh that is literally unheard of. It is. It, 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 it was chaos. So that was the first thing that struck me over this was again that's I can't I can't overstate how how strange that is, um, and that that's yeah. a testament to how bad the situation was. And these guys are yeah, Alamo. They can't like they're not they they can't even recover their dead. They've taken they they are combat and effective. They've yep. taken so many casualties. They can't, like you said, man. They're, the the tubes are Swiss cheese. The guns have totally fucking seized. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At, at that point, they're hunkering down with personal weapons and just waiting for the inevitability. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I. I mean, the you know, I didn't have a lot of time to talk to guys. I mean, they were pretty beat down. Uh, I mean, rightfully so. And that's something that you know, I heard. I have heard like people talk, kind of talk shit about it, and. And, uh, oh, you know, it's like all the quarterback, you know, bullshit that people say, but they weren't there. So they didn't get that impression of like the place, the entire place was on fire. You know, it was on fire. I mean, they had, they had shot so much stuff at this fob that like basically every building was on fire. Right. 
um, all of the vehicles were damaged in some capacity. I mean, whether it was RPG, whether it was Fig 9, whether it was, you know, armor-piercing rounds. Dude, that's the other thing, man. Like, th- like what you described, that doesn't really sound like an RPG going through an up-armored. Like, yeah, no, that it is, was, that, that is it was like a perfect circle, man. That, I just remember sounds, looking through it. sounds like a Spig 9. Yeah, now, it was those that, again, for those that aren't familiar, Spig 9 is this massive Soviet-era recoilless rifle. That takes yep. time to set up. It's on this massive yeah. tripod. It's not. It's not man portable, in the least. The thing is huge. Yeah, it's huge. It's it's advanced, um, but it's and it's extremely effective. Honestly, it is. But yeah, it's a scary the, the idea that they had pre-sighted those gun positions with a Spig Nine, again, yep. that complexity, man. That's yeah. And these guys fought for it. I mean, there's no. I mean, they didn't. The th- I, mean, I don't know if it's a misconception or not, but they didn't, they didn't just give up the ghost. They fought for it. You know, a lot of these guys, uh, actually, I would say all of them um, lost their lives in defense of that little piece of, um, you know, little piece of America, I'll call it, because they're, you know, they were like, hey, we're not giving it up. I mean, they, they all went to fighting positions. They did what they were supposed to, um, and it was just overwhelming. And it was decisive in the sense that the enemy had all of the high ground. Once OP Fritchie was gone, or it was in its own battle, right? It was defending its own its itself. Um, you know, it was it was. I think it was pretty much done for them. I know Cass took a while to get up there. It, whenever we started getting that far up north, you start having a real problem with Apaches. You know, they come on station and they're like, "Hey, man, the, your 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 JTAC is basically calling targets before the Apaches even." get on station because they only have a couple of minutes of burn time and then they have to leave. So they're coming in guns hot and they're going Winchester as fast as they can and they're leaving. Same with A-10s, right? A-10s come on station. They can only be there for so long. And so if you don't have a JTAC who is very, very talented, which we were lucky to have JTACs attached directly to our unit um, on this deployment. Uh, if you don't have, you know, attack P or JTAC or whatever, CCT, that like, who is not very talented, you're going to have trouble getting those air assets to be very effective um, in that situation. So, uh, but it was, you know, it was a surreal experience for me as a young NCO. I felt like uh, the chain of command that, so I want to separate first off, there was the platoon that was with us and that platoon, like the leadership of that platoon. So I'm not talking about them, right? They're, they were phenomenal. Uh, I think that- yeah, the guys at Keating, and yeah. then also our QRF platoon, right? Mm-hmm. So our 132 QRF platoon that was there, uh, their leadership, good dudes, solid dudes, did everything right, helped out with everything, willing to get it done. Uh, I'm talking about my direct kind of command, like headquarters element guys. Um, not really the best example to set for, for the rest of us at, during this, right? Uh, I'm an E5 at the time. Pretty, pretty low ranking as far as like the rank that was there. We had a first sergeant there. We had a couple E7s, you know, um, and somehow I'm directing traffic here, right? I'm like, hey, maybe we should get these casualties to the LZ, right? Like maybe we should start doing that now because the birds are on the way. Uh, and there's there's eight of them, right? And they're heavy. People are heavy, you know, and it's uh, we want to be respectful and do this right. So, you know, there's that. It was just kind of weird, man. I mean, there was, there was like a level of disrespect. I felt that those guys, like my direct command, I felt like, uh, you know, they were very concerned with stuff that just did not matter. And we were trying to get, we were trying to do like some real work to get this place phased out. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I think I left off where we had basically we were cleaning up, right. Cleaning up. I was finding night vision. I was finding radios. I mean, we were, you know, machine guns everywhere. I mean, we were basically trying to, they had, there was an officer from their unit who was talking to me quite a bit, uh, which again, I'm an E5, right? Why, why is this coming at me? But whatever, I'm just taking it as it comes. Um, he's like, give me a list of stuff. Like, hey, we're missing these items still. You know, we think they're out there. And so we're going out, back out uh, and just searching, you know, and we're finding them. We found, I think we recovered mostly everything. Um, but it's stuff that's important, you know. It's like we don't want to leave, you know, night vision on the battlefield. We don't want to leave 240s on the battlefield, you know. Like, so we're grabbing all that stuff. 
and we're just giving it back to this unit so they can get accountability so we can get out of here, right? Um, and I, I remember we, we ended up like loading up, you know, we let these guys load up and then we collapsed out. We get on a, a Chinook as well. We circled a few times. Uh, they had time fused, you know, all the explosive um, stuff. And so we watched, I mean, I think, I think some of it went off. Uh, I didn't see it all myself because I was packed into the Chinook with everyone else. So I didn't really see it, but uh, I think it went off. And then we made, started making our way back down to uh, Fob Bostic. Uh, where we were going to kind of, you know, it's nighttime again, right? We're flying. It takes a while to get there. And uh, we land there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was, that was basically the Keating experience, right? Um, it was, it was a very surreal experience for me. It was very defining um, in terms of, you know, how important it is to, you know, there's just like the little details of leadership. You know what I mean? Like when you're in a situation where, there's been a loss of life and there's been, you know, a, a large loss of life. Uh, it's, you know, making sure that you are um, being respectful of that. You know, it's like, we, we all have kind of become desensitized to war and death and all that in the army. But, you know, when it's, when it's not your unit, it was almost, it was almost like a little numbing, right? Like I felt compassion for those guys, but at the same time, it, it was just a different feeling because it wasn't my unit, right? If it was eight of my dudes, like our previous deployment, the, the reaction would have been very different coming from us. But I felt like it was, it was defining in the sense that you have to step up as a leader and kind of overcome the emotions that you're feeling, you know, compassion for other people, stuff like that. You have to really know when it's time to, you know, to let a dude kind of rest his head on your shoulder, but also we got a lot of stuff, to, a lot of work to do, and it needs to get done or else it's not going to get done, you know, and so it was a, it was a defining time. I mean, I, I know I, my shooter, he was a real young guy. It was his first deployment, um, and he was, you know, being exposed to that was definitely, we still talk about it to this day. It was, it was just a, it's not often that you see that level of carnage, right? It was, it was a, it was not a good, um, I'm just thinking how to say this. It just wasn't a, a good day for the U.S. Army, right? We had, a, we had guys that were put in a bad position, and they knew it. But it just kind of, it's one of those decisions that maybe it got passed up, and people were just kind of like, whatever, just everyone's on the low ground, you know? And they didn't really understand how bad that place was in a bowl and how steep the terrain was and how close the you know, all the fingers were, you know, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was basically the, the cop heating experience, man, from a, from a QRF perspective, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's going to be tough. I mean, obviously, there are a few accounts from inside the cop, obviously, sure. there, there's a Medal yeah. of Honor citation that came out of, out of the cop. Um, but two, I believe now, right? Two, was it two? Yeah, I think I think I think they I think they uh, it was awarded later, but I think okay. there were two. I mean, don't quote me on that. I think there were. So probably rightfully so, honestly. Yeah, I mean, so you had, like you said, a, a dark day in the United States Army. Yeah, but you know the the story inside is told, and it's easy to tell because it, it's documented, and the QRF goes in, they can get an, a, an idea. But I thought it was important to sit down with you and, and hear about your experiences as part of the QRF because sure. you're going to be, you're going to have probably the rawest experience to that and as to the aftermath. If, you know, if cop Keating had gone different, it would have been, you know, yeah, there, there would have been awards for, for valor and yeah, they saved, they staved off sure. a complex enemy attack, things like that. But the fact of the matter was they didn't, they couldn't, yeah. they, they were yeah, just they were overwhelmed. overwhelmed. They, they had every tactical disadvantage in a firefight. They did. They had, they had the low ground, and it, was, it wasn't just low ground. It was steep low ground. I mean, Christ, even with, in, even with indirect fire, you know, that, that's, that's tough. Those are tough calculations tough. for that. Yeah, for, yep. for fusing and, and things like that. Like, when you're getting shot at, that it just exponentially makes things more difficult. It's, it's not like you're hitting something on the same plane. Like, it, now things have become entirely more complex. If they had snipers 
in, in the comp during the attack. Now they're taking the opposite of a high angle shot and which is also difficult. And it, it just, yeah, everything oh yeah. that was, everything that was stacked against them or could be stacked against them was, but coming in and seeing, seeing the carnage on both sides, because they, sure. you know, I think it's been, it's clearly obvious that, that they fought like hell. They fought like lions. It, it was just the situation, the, the hand that they were yeah, dealt. They were, they were, they were dealt a dirty hand. And I mean, it was, it was an eye opener. I would say that cop heating was, you know, if we go backwards in time to, to my first deployment, um, we had a, a Colonel in charge of our battalion. Uh, he's a general now, his last name's Cavoli. Um, he was a pioneer of the cop, right? The whole combat outpost, right? The actual, the first cop actually was the Corngall outpost with a K. Right. I mean, I don't know if this is the first one. This is the first one that was really recognized as like, hey, this is a disparate thing out, out in the frontier. It's not supported very well. These guys are just going to have to slug it out. We're deep in enemy territory. We're disrupting supply lines. We're doing, honestly, the shit the Army is supposed to do uh, when, when we're fighting another, you know, another force. And uh, I agreed, even as a young, you know, I, I deployed in Afghanistan as a, as a PFC, right? Like nobody dumb shit that like I just was in a platoon and but I agreed like when we started hearing this plan I was like yeah that makes sense to me right we need to be out there we can't really we can't really do anything from inside one of these really big kind of uh massive fobs right we need to be out of these combat outposts and so you know I spent the next 16 months in a fire base that only had two platoons right? It was a dog company mounted platoon and it was our light infantry platoon. And so it was mountain warfare to the T. I mean, we were, we were hiking up massive mountains, carrying everything with us, food, water, no helicopters to support us really, no casts. Uh, it, it had to be like a troops in contact for a bird to even get redirected anywhere near that. You know, it was all in Iraq in 2007. Um, and I think we really learned a lot of lessons from that, you know, that fighting, you know, that 16 months, but the enemy was also learning as well, right? And this is years later, the enemy is like, okay, these guys are going to position themselves in the low ground on these kind of like micro fobs. We have to mass on these things to, uh, you know, to, to decisively beat them. Um, and we don't need to fight them out on patrol. We're never going to beat them on patrol. They're, you know, six of them and six of us it's like their, their odds are not good uh, in, a, in a frontal attack, but this way they can catch us where they, they control the battle space, right? They control the timing. They control how often they kind of harass you. They, you know, they can do all these psychological things to you uh, before they attack. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, a, there's another, you know, that, the thing we were talking about earlier uh, with that award citation stuff, that battle is another example of, uh, you know, us being in a low ground, surrounded with no OPs on the high ground, and the and what made our outcome different. The enemy was massing on us in the same exact way they were massing on heating, but the difference was we dominated air power, right? We had learned the lesson uh, from heating, you know, that basically we had to have something on station immediately to start, you know, kind of in our mortars too. We had. Our mortars were just set up a little differently. Uh, they, they weren't quite as low, right? They were up at a little bit of a higher elevation. Um, and so those factors though, you know, me being again, a, uh, a sergeant, from my view, point of view, what helped us was the fact that we got decisively engaged, a B-1 bomber came on station. It dropped all 26,000 pounds of bombs. It flew off station, another one came to replace it. You know, just a massive amount of like, airlift capability that that like you know and I think of like sometimes I get weird about this stuff where I think of like there's us on the ground and then there's the JTAC that was there and he's talking to um the pilot of the B1 bomber at, on SATCOM as they're flying from Kyrgyzstan or wherever right and they're like cutter I'm not even sure where they where they come out of but they're you know they're going supersonic the, the U.S. government is literally burning fuel at a rate of insanity 
So this plane full of bombs can come and then, it, you know, so kind of just like a weird, you know, kind of weird thing there. But, uh, you know, those B-1 bombers um, and the mortars and just how we were organically supporting, but we had to have, we had to have aircraft or else we would have had the same outcome. Well, it's just, it's, you know, weighing the factors, right? Like in, in that, in, in the battle that you're discussing, you know, the, the factors were similar in, in the sense that you guys had the low ground. Sure. The enemy, the enemy had the tactical advantage of the high ground. They, they had the tactical advantage of the numbers. How, how do we, you know, that, that's the difference between Keating and what, what was, what was the specific engagement? Uh, Barge Mittal. That's it. Yeah. Um, the, the difference is, is how does the United States leverage its assets to even the, the battle space? Um, yeah. In this case, it was air power and, and indirect fires that, that could continue uh, mission. But that's interesting. It's, it's, and I don't want anybody to get the, like the, the wrong impression because a lot of people in Christ, on this podcast, I, I literally had a, a Marine vet tell me that air power is overrated and it takes uh -huh. the infantry fight and, but I mean, it that, can, it can. You could over, you could use it improperly. You can, sure. you can. Yeah, you can use it improperly. You can, but if you have a decent JTAC and... Which honestly, we did. And that's like one of the things that I, I pride myself on is being a decent JTAC is is proper employment and weaponeering of, of the systems that you have at your disposal. But in, in this regard, like it doesn't take away from the infantry fight that it literally levels the playing field. Like you said, the idea that the that the United States is a supersonic strategic bomber, yeah, loaded with twenty six thousand pounds of ordnance that is just screaming its way through Afghan sure. airspace, and that JTAC isn't even waiting because he's on SATCOM, he's yep. not even waiting for for that aircraft to get on station. He's going to do what we call an enhanced target description. He says, "Listen, you guys are going to come over this fucking ridge, and here's what you're going to see on your pod." And when you see that in your pod, they're going to be here, here, and here. So before they even get on station, that aircraft knows exactly where it's employing its, its weapon systems. That's yeah. impressive. That's yeah, a really, and it was. really good JTAC to say, here's an enhanced target description. You're not even seeing it. You and I aren't going to correlate with what we're seeing, but I'm describing it so well that when you guys get on station, you guys can immediately employ. You guys are going to give me an in-call with direction or heading we want to do it as a JTAC. I'm going to give you a clearance, and we're going to drop bombs, and we're going to we're going to decisively defeat this enemy. That's impressive. Yeah, and it was it was uh, you know, so I'm from South Dakota, which is where the B1 bombers, you know, are. My dad was in the Air Force at Ellsworth, uh, so when you know I have like this personal connection with the B1. I mean, I saw it as a kid. B52s, B1s taking off, doing sorties, you know, just like daily. You just hear them taking off. Uh, seeing them in, in combat was a different kind of feeling, but I remember, you know, we're basically just, you know, the mountain's on fire. Uh, this B-1 comes in, and this is Barge Metall again. We're kind of getting off topic here, but whatever. And uh, it's, you know, it's coming on station. It was a female talking to the JTAC, right? And in all of this chaos that's going on, and, it, and it's, it's scary, right? But somebody hears the female, a female voice. And like dudes start coming out of the woodwork. They're like, "Hey, man, can you just like, can you just like have her confirm something or, or do something?" And and so the JTAC's like, uh, "Hey, can you?" And she like talks, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, I bet she's so beautiful," you know. Like, and then, but I found it funny because, and I don't know like how a B one bomber is set up. If it was the pilot, or if it was like a Wizzo, or like who so was actually what, talking. What you're actually talking to is on the B one. You have an offensive system uh, offensive mm. weapon systems operator yeah. so they're sitting in the belly so you have the pilot the co-pilot then you have offensive and defensive weapon systems sure so you're actually talking to the offensive weapon systems officer so who's the, down in the belly and she's got about a, a million screens in front of her and a keyboard yeah. and and a mouse and a joystick it's like a video game sure well so she i mean that thing well so first they came in and they did a show of force and that thing went supersonic right over bars metal at, I remember we were up like, you know, we weren't, we were pretty low and it was like almost at eye level. It was scary how low it was flying. So it came in and I just remember everything going silent for a second because even the enemy was just like, fuck, 
You know what I mean? Like it's here. Dude, but then it's scary. And the fact that it can bomb multiple targets in one pass, I don't think they saw that coming. I no, think that was a problem for them because it was, you know, there were four mountain, there were four like peaks around us and all four of them got obliterated in one pass. Dude, one, I just want to say, I just, in case anybody who's listening or watching doesn't understand, the B1 is probably the most impressive cast platform. In the so United awesome. States. Yeah, it's everybody, so awesome. everybody loves the A10. The A10s are great. You got gun runs. You got uh, you got 16 hard points for weapon systems. B1 though, like the idea that this thing can scream in at full afterburner and burst the sound barrier after flying 2,400 miles or whatever it was to this specific area. Yeah. And and while the B, everybody thinks the B52, but the B the B1 has the larger payload has a larger payload yeah. than the B-52. The B-52 has a more diverse payload, but the B-1 is sure. it's super impressive. But as impressive as that was, and it, actually it's funny, you get a female on the, on the net. As a JTAC, same thing. I had, listen, Freedom 1-1, some Navy <laughs> pilot who was, flying, who was flying above. Man, she's, I mean, it, that, it just happens. You know, you get a female, everybody in, on the team is like, oh, hey, why don't you just turn on that radio speaker? And yeah, I was like, turn that well. Um Animals, man. Dude, Animals. yeah, Freedom 1-1. Uh, my, my team will never forget her. Uh, yeah, they I, have no idea who she is, but she left an impression. <laughs> well, in, interesting story, though. So I'm back in South Dakota after, you know, after I get out. And I'm actually going on Ellsworth. And uh, I see a guy walking in his flight suit. And he has, you know, the Air Force they wear. If they're an A-10 pilot they have like the little a10 on there if they're a b1 you know the little so he had, like, yeah yeah they have a little solo he has a b1 so i stop him and i'm just like hey man like this is weird i was in afghanistan in 2009 i was in this place called barge Matal, uh and you know these b1 bombers kept like coming to save our lives right and i i just wanted to know like you know and he's like i know exactly who that was right and so he's like hold on and he like calls and they like come out. I was like at the uh, the post exchange or whatever, and uh, they like come out to the parking lot. They like drive from their you know from work, and they and I got to chat with them. So it was super cool to meet. I, and it wasn't all of them, obviously, but it, you know I got to meet a couple of the pilots and stuff. And and they were like, wow, we've never been able to meet one of the guys on the ground, you know. And I said, I'm like, man, that's so. It's almost a shame that we're never connected with uh, with the air power because it. It is like those guys hear us on the ground and they're worried, you know, they're hearing us, like you said, however many thousands of miles away. Um, and they, you know, they're doing everything they can down to, I know on one sortie, it was like one of the B1 like had a, like an engine failure. And so they had to like dump all the fuel and land it. And then they like the, the maintenance crews had to like get another one ready to go. Right. And then it had a problem and it had to dump its fuel and land. So they, three B1 bombers, literally like this crew somewhere in the middle of nowhere, somewhere else on an airbase, did everything they could to get a B1 bomber out to us in the middle of Afghanistan. They didn't even know what it, where it was going, you know, it's just kind of crazy. Like the massive, we are an empire who is like, that's something that I, you know, I would tell my guys is like, we are an empire, dude. There's, there's assets everywhere in the world. There's satellites, there's bombers, there's planes. It's crazy, man. It really is crazy. We, we can project power anywhere in the world. Yeah, and, it's crazy. And you're absolutely right. But, I mean, beyond the air power, because that day, honestly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there, was plenty, there were plenty of things going on on the ground that were sure. noteworthy. Uh, cop Keating or? No, no. Um, it, it, uh, oh, of uh, Barge Matal? Barge Matal, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can, I mean, we can talk about Barge Matal, too. I mean, that was... Uh, I mean, but again, a, another just just another decisive moment in Afghanistan. So, I mean, go ahead. It, you know, I yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not. I won't go all the way. Go for it, dude. <laughs> I'm not. I won't. We'll save the Barge Matal story for another time, dude. But it, perfect. But I love it. it. But it. I mean, it was. It was just another. I mean, Afghanistan was about, uh, you know, fighting at elevation, and it was a lot of lessons learned. And, and quite frankly, I think a lot of those lessons are going to be lost because. I don't know. And maybe, maybe there's some officer out there who is compiling information for some field manual on mountain warfare, lessons learned, 
and this is an alpine warfare. This is, it's different, right? Yeah. There's like high altitude warfare that's different than, you know, like when you're on skis and shit, that's different than when you're just hoofing up a mountain, right? Um, so I, I don't know if somebody's compiling that, but I think, you know, there, if we ever go back to a mountainous region, there's, I'll kind of end it with this, that there's going to be some private who has a machine gun and his army doctrine is going to teach him that he should have a tripod and he should have a 50 round starter belt and, you know, and he should have both barrels and all this weird stuff. And he's going to find out the hard way that, you know, it, for fighting in the mountains, it's different. You know, he shouldn't, he shouldn't carry his equipment as if he's in a flat, you know, flat land engagement. Uh, and he's going to find out the hard way because we, because we're not writing it down. And that's kind of the thing that worries me about it. I mean, I hope, I, I hope that there is that somebody had, had taken the, uh, listen, West Point cadets, get on it. If you're listening. Well, hold on, on hold on. <laughs> if, if we're going to, if we're going to put our, our faith in that, I don't know if you just saw that social media post that came out <laughs> of West Point. With, yeah, the, uh, no. with the cadet, and he had the, the lens cover on his uh, M68 CCO. Yeah, uh, well, like, that, oh, that, may, that might be the reason, though, he's more qualified to just write this report. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if we're being serious. He knows serious, his place. He, yeah, he should just put together this awesome report, slideshow thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would be a good idea. So if you're out there listening, West Point cadet, get it done. Like, that could be your <laughs> – you know, or whatever. There's some, like, I don't know. Officers are weird. They do, like, they do, like, continuing education. Maybe that, you know, do your master's degree on mountain warfare, if that's a thing. Asymmetric mountain warfare, baby. There you go, yeah. Gun team, right. gun team stuff. Absolutely. Adam, well, we don't want to keep you. You've been great, as always. We'll bring you back to keep these stories coming, because I think it sure. is. It, it's kind of just an oral history, because, like you said, who knows if anybody's yeah. writing this down. You know? No, absolutely. We're sure as hell not. Nobody from my battalion is, right? So we'll just Nobody. keep running it as an oral history. So, dude, I can't thank you enough. It's, it's always a pleasure having you on. Guys, if you haven't checked it out, if you guys just take a look right here. Oh, God, here we go. Shameless plug. Listen, I'll shamelessly plug it, man. Shamelessly it, plug it. Dude, it's the best kit I own. It is. Hands down. That, that Well, you, you need the thing, though. The thing is the next. Well, hold on. This thing is getting replaced very soon Yeah. with part of that system. And the thing, I'm very yeah, excited. The thing about. is what? The thing was built for JTACs. I know. I'm so very excited for it. I'm we're talking dual excited. radios. We're talking pouches. We're talking a chest piece that can carry your ATAC device. Ooh. Yeah, it's all there. It's a it's test rig still, but so guys, if you haven't checked out Spiritus Systems, uh, they make the best kit on the market. Adam, thanks so much, brother. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me on. All right, dude. Be well.